Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and that you're staying happy. Later, we'll meet Steve Earle, a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, record producer, actor, and author whose song Copperhead Road is still a jukebox favorite 33 years after it made him a superstar. First though, let's meet Clark Peters. Now, if you were a fan of The Wire, and let's face it, who wasn't, or if you went to the theater to see his Tony Award-nominated show, Five Guys Named Mo, you know exactly who he is. The busy actor, playwright, and director stars in the new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods, as one of four Vietnam vets who returned to the country decades after the war ended to recover the body of their former squad leader, played by Black Panther's Chadwick Boseman. Thing is, he also happens to be located near some buried treasure. So it's an adventure movie that also examines the role of African-American soldiers in Vietnam and how that conflict affected the rest of their lives. I spoke to Clark Peters from his home in London, England, where the American-born actor has lived since the 1970s. You'll notice that several times we refer to, quote, the events of this week. Well, this interview was taped on Friday, June 5th, as protests were happening worldwide in the wake of the death of George Floyd. I began the interview with Clark Peters by telling him that I thought one of the messages of The Five Bloods was about learning to think about more than just ourselves, the individual. At the beginning of the pandemic, I really thought we had achieved something like that. Most people socially distanced for the good of everyone, but in recent days, it felt like some of that had fallen away. I asked him for his take. Well, the pandemic, I, I think, um, was a wonderful prelude to people slowing down, stopping, and having a chance to reflect. I think the, uh, the more recent events, um, um, those people were, who were reflecting were able to and empowered to get up and do something about it. Um, they were not just venting their their um, their frustration for being locked up. I would imagine that they also came to a point of conscience, like, well, you know, that is wrong. I've had time to sit back and think about things, think about my life, think about my children's life, think about my neighborhood, think about this, these things in general. So in that respect, um, George has served us all, has done a great service to us all in that respect. Um, unfortunately, it has, it has also shown that there are certain uh, individuals that have no respect to, uh, for life whatsoever. You know, and Sadly, they are sitting in, uh, in, in, in seats of power, you know, that uh, um, and are finding ways to use that power abusively, you know, uh, unconsciously and unconscionably as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I think the pandemic with this coming on has, has been very, very interesting um, movements in history, you know, for the whole of the Western world, really, or for the whole earth, you know, the whole dynamic of, of, the, uh, um, of the effects of colonialism are being played out now because of this, you know, from, uh, from, uh, um, from the Maoris um, in their protest, you know, to uh, Japan and its protest, you know, um, you know, around Europe, you've seen that, you know, and 
so there, there, there's, there's something, there's something wonderful in one respect happening out of this senseless tragedy, out of this senseless, absolutely senseless. You know, it's taken me a while to stop crying behind it, you know, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we, will, we will get beyond this, you know. What we need is a proper, proper plan of what we're going to evolve into. There's no use of having a revolution if you don't know what you're going to evolve into. You're listening to my interview with Clark Peters, star of The Five Bloods, now on Netflix. You were 19 in 1971, living in Paris, doing hair, uh, the play hair, not doing hair, but doing the play hair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the FBI got in touch with you. And I love what you said about this. You said, if the enemy comes to America, I'll be there, but I don't know the Vietnamese. If you put me in the army, I'm not going there. Were those the most terrifying words that you've ever had to speak? Uh, pretty much so, because I, I didn't know exactly how it was going to be taken. Mm -hmm. you know? um, what I also said at that point in time was, I wasn't hiding. Mm -hmm. They tried to, uh, uh, um, I was charged with evading the, the draft, which means that you're hiding. I lived in Paris. I was at the, um, I was at the embassy on a number of occasions. My, my mail came through uh, American Express. When by that time, I, uh, by the time, uh, 74, by that time I was in, in, um, in, in London. So, um, and had lost a passport. You know, I mean, so, it wasn't like I was hiding, you know? Um, and I think that when they realized their bureaucratic mistake, there was nothing that, there was, really was nothing that they could do. But also at the same time, I think that the uh, FBI officers that I was in front of were very sympathetic to my cause and understood what would, uh, I don't think they were, they were, they, they were really wanted to go through that process for the day it was just like let's get this over and done with because this is nonsense you know and i and i appreciate them for that believe me <laughs> <laughs> how does it feel then almost 50 years later to revisit uh the idea of going to vietnam for the film it feels um i don't know it's, it, that that's that's interesting it, there, there's a a, a certain uh, um cathartic kind of feeling about it because of the demon of it and the fear of it over here in the back of my mind. Um, but being able to meet some vets who are still living in Vietnam, you know, having seen vets on the streets in New York, in Baltimore, in New Orleans, Los Angeles, um, I don't seem to carry the same anger and, and, and vehement that I had at the, as, as a young man, you know, um, life has sort of softened the, the, um, softened, softened the edges of my ire. Right. Um, um, but in, I understand them now more, you know. And I, uh, I don't look at them as the enemy. Some of them I look at as victims. Others I look at as heroes, you know. For me, they're all heroes. They are all heroes. Because at the end of the day, we wouldn't have the freedoms that we have in the West without them. 
you know, and I realize that there's a, a, uh, a portion of society that is um, raping the earth and using the military as their way in, you know. Um, so I don't look at our military as being uh, the bad guys. I see them more as being the victims, as being pawns in somebody else's uh, greed. Yeah. Interesting to, uh, to have a situation of being a soldier in Vietnam as an African-American person uh, and supporting a, a country in a, in a war that really isn't supporting you back. Did you talk to soldiers who had been in Vietnam about that, some African-American soldiers? Well, you know, we had, um, we had uh, um, when we were going through our boot camp, and the, uh, for a couple of weeks before that, we were working through the script and we were meeting people, we were meeting vets who, like I say, who were living there and having discussions with them, asking them questions and, you know, to find out how we fit into their skin, you know. And um, there was one, uh, we never got into the politics of, of, of why you went over there and, and, and why and, and, and all of that, because they stayed there. That, that spoke volumes. That spoke volumes that you stayed in Vietnam, right? For whatever reason, you did not want to go back to America. That spoke volumes. The other thing was that there was one man uh, who was answering questions pretty much with ease until we asked him about, did you ever lose anybody uh, who was close to you in Vietnam? And his whole demeanor changed. And there was like a pall of deep, deep sorrow that came over him that he couldn't easily shake off and finesse a way to continue the conversation. We all felt it. And there was a long pause before he said yes, you know, and that's, that was more telling than anything else he told us about, about the war. That also fed into our understanding of the love and the loss that, that men and women in that situation experience, but more particularly those of African descent. That bond and that love was something that came out of the 60s and throughout the 70s and 80s in the, in the African-American community, it was dismantled. And I think it was dismantled purposely because what we do realize is that love really will conquer all. And if you have a group of people who love each other, they protect each other, they nurture each other, and together they grow. So the best thing for you to do if you want to control them is certainly divide and conquer and make sure you find a way to cause some enmity between them. You're listening to my interview with Clark Peters, one of the stars of the new Spike Lee film, Defy Bloods, now on Netflix. We begin this segment by talking about working with the Academy Award-winning director, Spike Lee. I think that that, that question should, should be asked to, you know, to, to Delroy and to, um, and to Isaiah because they've worked with him more often than I did. Um, 
the thing that remained the same was that his work ethic, which is let's get up, let's get it done. This is a story that needs to be told. Let's get cracking. I love that. I love that. You know, um, and what he allows us to do is to add colors to his palette, you know, and he presents a palette that is just a wonderful array of things to draw from. You know, that hasn't changed, you know, but um, um, I've seen directors uh, not really know how to manage a set, you know, with all the components that he had to deal with, I think he did dynamically well, mm -hmm. you know, the language, the, 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 uh, the environment, um, the different cultures, you know, um, when we were on the canal, you know, um, that's a whole nother thing to have to deal with. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not in the jungle. Now we're in, we're, we're someplace up, you know. Uh, so there, there are a lot of elements, you know, from, you know, how do you shoot in a paddy field? How do you shoot in a bamboo forest? You know, how do you shoot up these mountains? How do you, I get this crew over here? You know, there's a lot, there was a lot going on. And I would say, there's a, he had a great, great team around him. Every single one of them is, was a star. You know, but he, he was the boss. He was the boss, you know? Yeah. You have two moments in the film that I think tell us everything we need to know about your character, Otis, without saying a word. And, and I love both these moments. And I, I don't know if they're the ones that resonated with you, but for me as a viewer, they did. Uh, when you first meet a young woman, I don't want to give anything away. You first meet a young woman at a dinner table. The look on your face tells you everything we need to know about your character's compassion, his empathy, his sense of loss, perhaps. There's, there's a lot going on right here. Uh, and then uh, early on, and this doesn't give anything away, uh, there's a scene with some firecrackers and everyone just plummets to the ground, just if they think it's gunshots. And it, that suggested to me that the experiences of four decades or more ago are still right here, still yeah. top of mind. And those yeah. two scenes told me everything I need to know about Otis, and you don't say a word in either. Well, eventually you do, but you don't say a word in both those moments that I love so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, that's uh, yeah, that, that, that formal one that you're talking about was, that was, uh, all I had to do is think about it. Yeah. You know, all I had to do was think about being in that situation, you know. And, and, that, and that's what I mean about, uh, uh, about Spike. Right. You, just, you, know, you just go there, you know. I could have improvised some lines or something like that there, but, you know, that's, that was part of his palette as well, you know, indeed. You're listening to my interview with Defy Blood star, Clark Peters. You just finished the American Clock at the old Vic, doing the American clock at the old Vic. Uh, then the pandemic happens, everything is shut down. And I'm hearing that the old Vic, uh, they've got uh, some plays that they're doing online and things like that. But is there news? Or, or, or will they reopen? Because the word that I've heard over here is that they may not. And that would just be heartbreaking. Well, it would be heartbreaking for all of us. You know, we're um, with theater actors first. You know, we do film because we like theater. and. It doesn't really pay, but that's where that's where our hearts are at. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with the West End. We don't know what's going to happen with Broadway. You know, um, you know, which which brings to mind, you know, there's there's um, 
there's something there's another strand to this pandemic that that uh, that is not being seen and because it's not being seen it's not just my antennas that are going up right. there are a lot of people's antennas that are going up like wait a minute there's too much disinformation and distraction for a society with this much intelligence to not be able to come up with one one scenario that works so because there's something different coming out of china something different coming out of italy something different coming out of new zealand something else different again coming from england something different coming from five different places in america um it makes me wonder but i suspect that amidst all that you know that Theaters will be locked down for a long time, but they might also be the first places that open up again to allow groups of people to come together and have the collective experiences that theaters give people. You know, uh, I always believe that there is no better way to create community and empathy than putting a group of people, group of strangers, facing this way and have another group of them facing this way that are telling us a story. That's right. And for us as well, for us as well, you know, for those actors who understand the magic of it, we also understand that there's a great responsibility in it. It is not about your ego. You are not the star. It's the story that you're telling that's the star. And you tell that story as best as you can, you know, and through the years you find ways to hone your craft so that you can, you know that if I hold on for just two seconds longer before saying this next word, that a tear is going to come up in somebody's eyes over there, or that the whole audience is going to fall out in laughter. That's a hell of a power to have and a hell of a responsibility, but also a very necessary service for, for society in the situation that we're in now. That was my interview with Clark Peters. You can see him right now in Spike Lee's new film, De Five Bloods, now on Netflix. And you know, while you're there, why not have a look around and find The Wire? If you haven't seen it yet, I guarantee you, you'll want to add it to your queue. I don't even know if it's on Netflix, but if it is, have a look. It's so bingeable, it will become your new obsession. I guarantee you. Steve Earle is my guest in the next couple of segments. He is a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, a record producer, author, and actor whose song Copperhead Road made him a superstar. These days, Steve Earle lives in New York City, where he makes music and works in theater. At the time of the pandemic, he was working on a show called Coal Country, a musical based on the Upper Big Branch mine explosion in West Virginia, one that killed 29 men and tore a hole into the lives of countless others. He wrote the music for the show and appeared in it until it closed early when theaters were shut down over public safety concerns. Seven of the songs he wrote from that show formed the basis of his new record, Ghosts of West Virginia. From Tennessee, via Zoom, Steve Earle talks bridging the political gap, going to Walmart, and how doing yoga helps him to center in these anxious times. We began our talk with him describing the decision to leave New York City and decamp to his second home in Tennessee. Here's Steve Earle. The play closed on the 12th when everything else did. My son's school closed on the 14th. 
my gym closed on the 16th and I took off. <laughs> that was it. So. And, and since you've, you've been there uh, in Tennessee, have you noticed that people are social distancing or people wearing masks? Is everyone following the rules? No, it just depends on where you go. It was interesting. I boycotted Walmart years ago, but I, I got a um, trampoline for my son shortly after we got here because he was impatient about the pool opening and it wasn't quite enough when we got here. And uh, we were in line to get it open, but it still was going to be too cold. So just something for him to do. He's 10 and he has autism. And so I was just trying to find something for him to do here. So I bought him a trampoline. And somewhere in the process, um, me and a friend of mine that was helping me, we lost some parts, you know, some hardware. So the only place open that I could get the hardware that I needed was Walmart. So I went into a Walmart for the first time in forever. And I... I had been to grocery stores and everyone had been wearing masks. I'd been other places in Tennessee and everyone had been wearing masks. I went into Walmart and no one was wearing a mask. And it's just uh, this, this Walmart out where I am in, in Williamson County, Tennessee. This is sort of the, the trashy corner of Williamson County. Williamson County is the, the largest county in the state. And it's a, it's a, it may be the most affluent county in the state, actually, because Franklin's in Williamson County. I don't live in that or Williamson County. The part I live in is a place called Fairview, and it's starting to, a lot of people moving here, and it's becoming more diverse, and, and, and a lot different was when I bought this house in 1988. This house, my business manager refers to it as the Alamo. It seems to be divorce-proof. It survived six divorces, and I still own it. So it's like, I don't know how I, I'm, I normally, I'm, I just spent more time here than I have in the last 15 years since I moved to New York. And I mean, and literally way more because I'm usually here Thanksgiving for, for four days, five days, Christmas for five or six days, sometimes a week. Mm-hmm. And then we go to Maui and then back to New York. And, and then I'm here at the beginning of tours to rehearse. And in the last two cycles, the way I've done that is I only summer. So that's, you know, um, beginning of the tour, like in May sometime, and I would have been here, I would have come here to rehearse. And my son comes here to spend the summer with his mother in May anyway, and stays with her until September. So I'm gonna stay even, I'm going to New York for the first time, I think in a couple of weeks. And um, um, I'll probably base out of here till September when he goes back to school. I'm pretty sure schools will be open by then and and he needs to be in the school he's in, you know, cause he kind of, you know, I worry about him losing ground if he's not in the routine that he's used to in school. That the system, it's just an autism thing. I, I wonder uh, what New York will look like when you go back. I know I've sat next to you on a couple of occasions at the Washington Street Diner uh, yeah. in the West Village, and I just looked it up online today, and their website's down. And that- yeah, that's interesting. They might have died. You know, um, those businesses. There's there's two that have been there forever in that neighborhood, you know, Waverly and Washington Square. Washington Square happens to be closest to my apartment. I've always lived, um, I lived closer to Waverly at one point. I lived on Jones Street the, the first like five years I was in New York. When I was on that, that, I ate at Waverly when I was on that side of Sixth Avenue. That's the way New York is, it's microcosm neighborhoods, you know. It takes money to get me above 14th Street when I'm in New York. <laughs> it's one of those things, I'm a downtown guy. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, I hope we don't lose too much. Um, 
that's you know that's one of the old like school greek owned delis you know that and, and it's uh you know they're kind of hanging by the edge of their teeth anyway a lot of them and um you know the the menus are huge and and um you know they don't um um you know I, I don't eat there a lot because most of what i would eat there you know i cook at home just because i got a little boy and it's just sort of and i don't eat breakfast much anymore so um just lifestyle changes over the years that i've been in new york 15 years now it's hard to believe but but you know some things have changed about the way that i you know that i eat and how i live since then you're listening to my interview with musician steve earl well are you still doing yoga every morning yeah six days a week because it's a it's a ashtanga practice there's a sabbath on saturdays so i don't practice saturdays um i it was um it's 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 a prayer and meditation system more than a physical exercise system for me but it does you know end up being pretty good exercise too i still get on an elliptical machine for an hour every day and i get on the trampoline and john henry thinks it's hilarious but i get on the trampoline and do about you know like three sets of about 20 bounces which is about you know it's, it, it kicks your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, what I'm trying to do there is make up for when I'm in New York, I walk six to eight miles a day. I figured out. Plus I live in the fourth floor walk up. So I've got a calorie burn that's missing since I came here and I've lost like 46 pounds since last August and I'm trying to keep it off. And, and uh, it was mainly by changing the way that I eat, but I increased the exercise too. And I want to stay on that. Uh, do you think that the, the yoga has helped reduce any anxiety that you might be feeling during the Absolutely. pandemic? Yeah. Absolutely. Because I'm, 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 look, <clears throat> the run of, when I was in, the, I, I did music for a Richard Maxwell plays season before last. So that was two months I had to be in the city limits of New York for that play, much to my managers and my accountant's chagrin. Because I had to stay there, you know, to rehearse, and the play was up, and it, so off Broadway play it ran for two months, like they do normally, and uh, and the same thing with this play. Um, I just spent the longest period of time in the city limits of one municipality that I had since I was locked up in 1994. So it's I'm I'm used to traveling, and um, so pretty easy for me to go batshit here. I had some bad things happen to me in this house. You know, I almost died in this house, you know, several times. And um, from I, drug spent use? I spent a Christmas that I completely lost Christmas Day detoxing in this house alone. I, I don't, it doesn't bum me out to come here, but it's not, you know, I, I don't live here on purpose. It's, it's a house that I own in Tennessee as a property to hold on to. While I have to work here, I like having it. It's also where the majority of my guitar collection is because there's not room for 140 guitars in my apartment. <laughs> I had a house in Woodstock and the collection was closer with that one away in the divorce and I've still got this place. So, so this is where the guitars are. And um, you know, it's, it's, I don't, I also, the shocking thing to me, I moved to New York to do music for theater. I moved to New York to believe the same air as Tony Kushner. And, and, and that means, and creatively and culturally, I moved there for the culture. I needed the input. I needed to be, you know, everybody's talking about everybody leaving New York. I hope a lot of those fuckers that are driving the rent up, you know, leave New York and then artists will be able to afford to live there again. You know, my rent's a lot of money, you know, and I'm a renter. So um, I'll never be able to afford to buy a place in New York. And um, it's just, um, and I don't care. 
I'm okay with renting. I like not having to fix shit when it breaks. And my landlady loves me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that, in that respect. So um, it's not, um, it's just, uh, I, I live there on purpose and, and I miss it a lot. But the first thing that vanished was the culture. You know, all the reasons for living in New York were gone within 48 hours, you know. You know, I don't give a fuck whether the shops in the Hudson Yards are open because I've never been there, you know. <laughs> That's what those things. In this segment, we begin by talking about recording in his favorite studio, the legendary Electric Ladyland in New York City, a place that was very appropriate to record an album called Ghosts of West Virginia. It's haunted as hell. Um, it's... um. It's in the basement, the original studio itself. Studios A and B are downstairs. There's now there are studios on the, the floors above. Right. Um, it's interesting because it's um, um, this is how haunted it is. I did, did a I did a thing for FUV there when when Terraplane came out, the blues record. And there's a song on Terraplane called King of the Blues that's essentially the same changes as Hey Joe. And um, you know the whole story of Hey Joe is a is a Greenwich Village story where Hendrix ran across that song and the guy that actually wrote it probably stole it in in Greenwich Village and um, uh, it's not um, the guy that we thought wrote it for years didn't you know he bought it basically is is the story that I hear but but um, but we were doing King of the Blues and I would we'd never rehearsed it we'd never played it. And, you know, there's about 30 or some odd, you know, like um, contest winners there from FUV that were in the room, you know, and it's not that big, you know, the main room at Electric Lady is not that big. So they're there, we're set up on one side of the room and I just kicked off Hey Joe when we got to the end of King of the Blues and we played it and it just came out of nowhere and it was goosebumps all the way through it. None of us had ever played it together. I think all of us had played it at one point in our lives, at least me. You know, Chris Masterson had, you know, guitar player and, and um, uh, as far as the guys that age in the band and, and you know, Kelly Lenny was still with us in those days and he, he definitely played it. And, uh, you know, uh, Will Rigby was the drummer still then. We, we'd all played Hey Joe before, so we got through it just fine. And it's become a regular part of our repertoire, you know, now the last, you know, how long has that been? It's been, been six or seven years. Now, let's talk about Ghosts of West Virginia. Seven of the songs were written for Coal Country, uh, the show that closed in the wake of the pandemic. And it is uh, a story about the upper big branch coal explosion killed 29 men, one of the worst mining disasters in US history, happened in West Virginia. Um, aside from, I mean, I assume that, they, that it wasn't just a, a writing for hire gig, that this means something to you, that uh, why was it important for you to write these songs? Um, I was sitting around trying to figure out how to make a record that possibly spoke to, and if I did it right for people that didn't necessarily vote the way that I did. I literally thought it was time to do that. I think we're in the trouble that we're in because of a lack of tolerance. And I think lefties are just as guilty of it as, as, as the right wing is. Uh, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a real life socialist. I don't have any trouble defining myself that way. Um, you know, um, but I've never fooled myself into thinking this was anything other than a right of center country. It was born to be that. And it is. 
and if it's going to be democratic, then that has to include the viewpoints of people that, that didn't vote for the candidate I voted for. And we used to have, and this is the one superiority we have to parliamentary governments, is our, our truly independent executive, independently elected executive branch. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world unless there's a military coup. And it's, um, it used to be, my grandfather voted for Democrats and Republicans for president. And I, I suspect that was the only election that he, that he voted in. And that's true of a lot of people. Um, I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. So um, we say that uh, people vote their pocketbooks, and that's not really what it is. They're voting their hearts. They're voting their families. They're voting life and death in their lives as they see it. And we have to understand about people. Like, for instance, I believe that coal's bad for the environment and petroleum's bad for the environment, but that doesn't mean shit in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and, and trying to understand, uh, anybody that, that, that doesn't understand why West Virginia went overwhelmingly for Trump is, is not trying very hard. And, and the idea that West Virginia, even there are West Virginians now that I've run into, you know, just, I don't read reviews, I don't, I'm not on social media, but people, People, unfortunately, insist on making me aware of shit from time to time. And, you know, there have been people that are, West Virginia's red, da, 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 da. And that's not true. It's as purple as states get. They still got a Democratic senator. And the reason for that is unions. And the reason for that is coal. So um, the idea is what do New Yorkers have in common with, with, with West Virginians? This fell into my lap. Jessica and Eric came to me because... They knew my music would lend itself to telling the story. I knew them because I was in the Exonerated as an actor twice and actually produced some of the first readings of it as an activist, you know, that, that worked, did a lot of work against the death penalty. That's how I met them. But they knew that my music would lend itself to this story because stylistically, and I talk like this, so I would come in handy on a trip to West Virginia to interview these people. So um, it, it just fell into my lap. It, this was... And it occurred to me that the epiphany was, oh, this is it. West Virginia is the canary in the coal mine. This is a great place. Now, this process, it's the beginning of a dialogue. This is chess. It's not checkers. And it's not, you know, I don't, um, some big didactic political record. I've made the preaching to the choir record twice. And, and I'm not particularly didactic when I do that most of the time. I mean, there are some people that think I am, but if you go back and look at Copperhead Road's a pretty fucking political record. So's Guitar Town and their Reagan era, you know, like in my mind, political records. Um, I still write more songs about girls than I do anything else, but I don't, um, I'm, I'm not a political songwriter. I'm just a political person. And I was raised in an era when songwriters just did, it never occurred to me that you didn't write about that, about topics, you know, so. So that's what it is. And I just, this fell into my lap and I, this was exactly the record that I wanted to make. And, and um, I'm, I'm really proud of it. You're listening to my interview with musician, Steve Earle. It's about blood uh, is so powerful on the album um, ghosts of West Virginia, because you take the time to mention the name of every man who lost their lives in there. And there are some people that have the same last name. I assume they are, father and son, maybe father and grandfather, whatever um, it might be. But it's first, very powerful. 
Thank you. The very first, the first verse of that song is largely about a guy named Tommy Davis, and he was the guy that you saw on Good Morning America um, with the ball cap that was talking to the cameras. He was the most vocal guy. He was really angry. Five members of his family, including him, were working there that day, and three of them died. He lost his brother, his son, and his nephew. So he was angry. Um, the names, I wrote the song and I had it finished and it was sort of halfway through the workshopping process. And I got reminded because I was in DC with some people uh, doing these concerts um, for the Women's Refugee Commission that Amy Lou Harris and I've been doing, which are the people that are getting into these camps along the southern border, among other places. And so we've been doing benefits for them for the last few years. Um, but my, the person that organized the concerts, Gail Griffith, she and I had worked together with Vietnam Veterans Foundation years ago on the landmine concerts with Emmy as well. And just for some reason, being in the company of those people and being in DC, it popped into my head the first time that I went and saw the, Viet the Vietnam Memorial. And I saw it with Vietnam Vets when I saw it. Um, I saw it with Bobby Muller and John Terzano, who, who, who ran BVF for years. Um, and I knew intellectually that those were names, but when you start walking towards that wall, the first time you get close enough, whatever your eyesight is, that you can read one of those names, it stops you in your fucking tracks because you realize they're all names. And that's really kind of what I was going for was that effect. I just, it was a way to, it's humanizing it. It's, it's a, I learned a long time ago that this job is about empathy. And you're, you can, the best way to get a, a, a difficult idea across is people don't give a fuck what, what happened to me. They care about what happened to me that they can relate to. So Johnny Cash came up to me when, I, when Guitar Town was out. I'd met him a few times, but came all the way across the room at a fundraiser we were playing. And he said, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And I was just, you know, it blew my mind that Johnny Cash even knew one of my songs. And uh, I just, um, so I, I, um, um, you know, I, I, you know, I just went on my chest all puffed up. And then a few days later, I, um, a few days later, I was in a truck stop and a truck driver walked up to me and said, you know, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And the light went off. What do me, who wrote the song, Johnny Cash and the truck driver have in common? We got kids and we miss our kids when we're gone. So that was one of the first, I've been doing it. I had learned to do it because I learned from Guy Clark and other people by osmosis. But that was the first time I became conscious of the fact that this job is about empathy. That's, that's what makes it work. That's how you're able to tell really complicated stories in three or four minutes. That's how you're able to get ideas across it that, that are unpopular and possibly, I've had three people over the years and then keep in mind not everybody has access to walk up and talk to me or the opportunity to do that i've had three people come up to me and say something you wrote changed my mind about the death penalty so you can't tell me that music can't change the world because i have experience of that in my life well that's it for my interview with steve earl remember you can find his new album ghosts of west virginia wherever you legally download and buy music it's a record that everyone seems to love. All music, the music review site, says that it has some of his most eloquent music that he's written in two decades. And I have to agree, this is really tremendous stuff.
My thanks to Steve Earle. My thanks to Clark Peters for coming by. Check out The Five Bloods on Netflix right now. Tremendous performance from Clark Peters. And like I said earlier, if you haven't seen The Wire, find it. He'll blow you away in it. Most of all, though, my thanks goes to you for listening in. I'm Richard Krause. Stay safe, stay happy, and we'll talk again soon.